0: If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the book of John, chapter 6, the fourth of the gospel accounts in the New Testament, chapter 6. And this morning we'll read verses 35 through 45, and then we'll skip down and read verses 63 through 65. John chapter 6, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now skip down to verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are of spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let's pray once more. Our Father, as we... Often pray, we ask that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us, for we pray this in your Son's name, amen. We've been in a series on the Gospel of John, and this is now the fourth week that we've been in this pivotal chapter in John chapter 6. I just want to briefly remind you of what we've seen before that sets the context for the verses we'll consider this morning. In verses 1 through 15, Jesus performs a mighty and wonderful sign. He feeds the crowds, the 5,000, uh, with bread that He miraculously multiplies and provides for them, and the crowds are quite excited that they have found this prophet that is able to provide them with bread unending, and so they seek to follow Him, and they want to make Him king. And this a very positive response to what Jesus has done for them. Uh, Jesus, though, uh, leaves without them knowing. He goes across the sea. Uh, we're told, by the way, he happened to walk across the sea and to come to his disciples in the middle of the storm. And he gets to the other side of the Sea of Capernaum, and the crowds follow him there. Again, very enthusiastic and uh, wanting to see sort of a repeat performance from Jesus. Uh, could he give us more bread? Could he give us more than bread? Uh, We've found something very special in Jesus. And Jesus then seeks to uh, instruct the crowds that they ought not to labor for the bread that perishes, but rather they're to work for the bread that endures to eternal life. And Jesus eventually tells them that this bread is himself. They shouldn't be chasing him just for material provision, but rather he himself is the bread of life. And he says in verse 35, whoever hungers, uh, he can come to me and he will be satisfied. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. It's a wonderful offer. Jesus is in essence saying, come to me, not just the gifts that I might give you, but have me as the bread of your life, as satisfaction, as delight, as what your soul truly needs. And it's at this point, verse 35 and following, that the uh, once positive reaction of the crowds becomes profoundly negative. Uh, There is this increasing, growing, positive response to Jesus that climaxes in verse 34. And after Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing the point. I'm the bread of life. I'm not here just to feed your bellies, but your soul. It's at that point that the reaction to Jesus becomes increasingly negative. uh, To the point that these thousands who have followed Jesus across the sea all leave him. They all cease to follow him. So Jesus is speaking his words beginning in verse 35 and following in the face, in the teeth of rank unbelief. People who do not believe him and people who he knows do not believe him. And in essence, what we have now in the verses that follow is Jesus taking us behind the curtain, behind the scenes and explaining to these crowds and to us why it is that these people don't believe him. As you read John 6, and you see this growing positive response to Jesus, and then you see massive crowds leave Jesus and follow him no more, verse 66 tells us. You might be left with the question in your mind does this mean that Jesus is a failure? That his ministry somehow missed the mark? That he was able to attract crowds for a moment, but failed to keep them? He had one of these sort of like flash in the pan ministries. Uh, where he was able to thrill the crowds, but for a moment, but had no staying power. I think that's sort of the question we're to be asking ourselves. In verse 36, when he says, you you don't believe in me, is it because Jesus is just a poor preacher? He really doesn't have the gifts to keep the crowds there, to hear the message that he has to offer them. Well, obviously, the answer to that question is no. Um, But what Jesus does for us here is tells us precisely why these crowds don't believe him. He wants to show us things that are going on invisibly behind the scenes that these crowds could have never seen or understood. What Jesus, in essence, does is takes us into the eternal councils of the Trinity and tells us what is going on behind the scenes from the standpoint of faith and salvation. And I think, if we're to read John 6 profitably, he's doing so as he gives these words about what God is doing secretly that these people can't see. He's got one eye... On the crowds, the fake disciples, he's got one eye on the twelve, and particularly the eleven within the twelve who truly believe in him. And he's thinking for these men, they're going to have to know what it is that's going on here. There's something that's happening that no one can see. He knows about it. Jesus knows about it. Only he could tell us about it. And he wants these disciples to know, when you see these thousands leave me, it's not that the word of God has failed or come back to me void. It's not that I'm not the Christ, the Messiah. There's something happening here that you cannot see. And I think he gives us instruction for their faith and for our faith as we who have before us the apostolic witness. These words are recorded for us. And that means it is God's will, the will of God the Holy Spirit, that we know and understand the things that Jesus said to these crowds those 2,000 years ago. God wants you to understand what it is that he is doing in his sovereignty with respect to faith and salvation. Why do some people believe and not other people? Why do some people come to Christ and others don't? What's going on there? And here we have recorded for us the reasons why all of that happens. And the lesson for us, brothers and sisters, is that God wants us to know There are things he wants us to see in what he is doing invisibly, sovereignly, behind the scenes to draw men and women to himself. So now here's what I think we're to learn, what we're to see, what Jesus is going to explain to us in these verses. So this is sort of the the thesis of the sermon this morning. What is it that Jesus wants those crowds to understand, his disciples, true disciples to understand, and for us to understand this morning? This is, I think, the lesson that we're to see in these verses, Jesus would show us that the decisive factor in salvation, excuse me, the decisive factor in the salvation of a sinner is the sovereign will of God. The decisive factor in the salvation of a sinner is the sovereign will of God by which He elects, regenerates, and draws the sinner effectually to himself. One more time, the thesis of the sermon and the thesis of this passage, the decisive factor in the salvation of a sinner is the sovereign will of God by which he elects, regenerates, and draws sinners effectually to himself. In other words, God is totally sovereign in salvation. This morning, I hope to demonstrate this truth from John 6. Who comes to Jesus? Why does one person come to Jesus and not another? What is the decisive factor in the salvation of a sinner? I believe all these questions are answered in our text. So, What I want to do is give you three points, really just submit to you three statements that I think are clearly founded and supported by the passage in front of us, but I want to encourage you, you be the judge before God, praying that His Spirit shows you the truth, you be the judge that these three statements are founded on this passage in John 6. So here they are. Here's the first statement. The coming of a person to Jesus has its origin in the sovereign will of God. The coming of a person to Jesus has its origin in the sovereign will of God. And now I hope to demonstrate that from the text itself, okay? Please look again, beginning in verse 36, and we'll read through verse 40. Jesus says, but I said to you, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Is Jesus a failure? Hardly. He says, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the point I'm seeking to establish is that the coming of a person to Jesus originates in the sovereign will of God. What exactly is happening in verse 37? What's going on there? What does Jesus mean with those mysterious words in verse 37? He says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. I personally think that his meaning is unmistakable. Jesus seems to be suggesting that the Father in some sense is giving souls over to the Son. He's giving souls to the Son. All that the Father gives you will come to me, and then he envisions An individual sinner who does come to Him, He will by no means cast out. The Father is giving souls over to the Son. Who are those who come to Jesus? They are those who at some earlier time were given sovereignly from the Father to the Son. You see the structure of verse 37? Something happens, the Father giving souls to the Son, and then later on, future orientation, these individuals will come to me in time, in the process of time. The Father elects them sovereignly, chooses them, gives them over to the Son, and then later on, in time, they will actually come to Jesus. I understand that to be the logic, the structure of John 6, 37. God elected, chose, predestined, gave to the Son a group of people, and then later, in time, they come to Him experientially, which means... Jack and Jill live their whole lives. Jack never comes to Jesus Christ, but dies in his sin. Jill does come to Christ when she's 21. And the question is, why did Jill come and not Jack? And I think the answer that this text provides us is that Jill was given from the Father to the Son in eternity past, and that's why in the process of time, she did undoubtedly come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Those sinners who come to Jesus do so according to the will of God. You notice three times in verses 38 through 40, Jesus makes reference to the will of his Father. Three times he says, I'm here to fulfill my Father's will. He has a will. There's something he wants me to accomplish. There are souls he's given me, and I will have them because this is his will. He's in essence saying, I'm doing my Father's will. And if you crowds, you're not coming to me, it's not because I'm a crummy preacher. It's not because I'm not the Son of God. It's because the Father has not given you over to me. Because everyone who the Father does give to me will come to me. Oh, and by the way, those who do come, I won't lose them. I will never cast them out. The origin of a person's coming to Christ is found in the sovereign will of God. I think what Jesus is talking about here is nothing other than than the doctrine of sovereign election. God does an antecedent work in order to bring about the salvation of sinners. If a person comes to Christ, it is because God in His sovereignty ensured that it would be so. The Father says to the Son, these souls will come to you, my Son. I have sent you into the world to redeem them, and they will come to you. Nothing will stop them from coming to you because salvation will be brought about by my sovereign will. I have given them to you, and they will come. This is John's version of Ephesians chapter 1. We read there in verses 4 and 5. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of His will. God's will was the decisive factor in drawing these people to salvation. It was the sovereign will of God, His purpose, His will, His choice. God made a determination that they would be saved, and in time He would shower His grace upon them, and they would be drawn to Him in saving faith. The sovereign will of God is seen to be the decisive factor in salvation. So you came to Jesus in time. Maybe you can remember the day or maybe the season of life. And yes, you came to Him willingly. You had a will. You chose to come to Him. You decided to come to Him. But I'm wanting to get behind that desire and that will. How did you become willing? Why did you decide to come and not your sister or your brother or your cousin or your coworker? Well, what was it in you that brought about your salvation? unless it was God Himself who made you willing, who in His sovereign will chose you and changed you and drew you to Himself. And that leads now to my second point. The first point is this, established from John six thirty seven, the coming of a person to Jesus has its origin in the sovereign will of God. Secondly, people are incapable of coming to Jesus unless God sovereignly draws them. People are incapable of coming to Jesus unless God sovereignly draws them. Look with me at verses 41 through 45. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. For it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Like so many other passages, so many other passages in the Bible, I believe that this text teaches us that people are totally unable of themselves. To choose to follow Christ, to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think Jesus' words are very flexible here. He says, no one can come to me in verse 44. No one can, like it's impossible. No one can come to me. No one has the ability to do that of themselves. Now, why is that? Is that because God is keeping them at arm's length, even though they would so want to come to him and wish to come to him, and he's just holding them off by his sovereign will? No, that's not it at all. Why can't people come to Jesus? Why is it impossible for people to come to Jesus on their own? What's the holdup? What is keeping people from salvation in Christ? Remember what John told us earlier in this gospel. Do you remember what he said to Nicodemus in John 3? verses 19 through 20, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Natively, naturally, we don't want God. We're born haters of God, if the human heart in its native state is given the choice between God and sin, light and darkness, we will choose sin and darkness ten times out of ten, unless God does something. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. We have to understand the status quo. We are not blank slates when we come into the world. Natively, naturally, at our birth, we're born haters of God, lovers of sin, lovers of self Lovers of darkness. And that's what John would persuade us of in John 3 19 through 20. We get a little more detail again in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 through 3. There, Paul says to the Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, we have to understand the status quo. Dead. Dead. Under the dominion of sin and Satan. By nature, our hearts are captured by immorality and sin, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, living in the passions of our flesh. If anything is to move the dial, God must do it. I'm mean, going to just try this. Okay, test God's word. Go to a grave and say to that dead man or woman, Come on, we're going to go to McDonald's after church. Let's go. Can't do anything. He's dead. I'm not trying to be silly, but that's the language that Paul uses here. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then listen to what Paul goes on to say. God must do something. He says, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God must do a work. If we're ever to be woken from our death, if we're ever to have light shine into our darkness, God must take some sort of initiative, which I think means that salvation is all the result of the sovereign activity of God. God must break in and do the work. If anyone is to be saved, God must do something because we're born dead in sin, we're born haters of God. No one can come to Jesus of his own accord. And that's what our text says in John 6. No one can come to me. It's impossible. Unless, unless. Here's the hope. Now, we may want to fill or complete that sentence with all kinds of things. No one can come to me. You know, Jill is never going to come to saving faith. Something's got to happen. You know what we have to do? We have to organize a really, really good youth camp. And we have to... Set it up for a really emotional, big final night, and then she'll come. No one can come to me unless we have a really good program for evangelism. Doesn't say that. If we could just get the circumstances just right, what does it say? No one can come to me. Here's the hope unless the Father who sent me draws him. What do you pray for? Your lost friend, your lost child got some strategies in mind, and some plans for how you're going to awaken their dead heart and shine light into their darkness, here's your recourse. Here's your hope. Your child cannot come to Christ unless the Father who sent the Lord Jesus into the world draws him or her. Your mother, your father, who you've been praying for for years, will never come unless the Father who sent Jesus Christ into the world draws him or her. People are incapable of coming to Jesus unless the Father sovereignly draws them. We call this, sometimes theologians call this, effectual calling. The idea is that when God effectually calls a sinner, they come. He says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes. And many have commented that had he not said Lazarus and specified his name, everyone in the graves would have come forth. Because people respond to the sovereign drawing of a sinner, to himself. And so I just ask you, am I imposing my Reformed theology on the text? I'm really just stating the words back to you. This is what the Scriptures reveal about God, that in His sovereignty, He draws people, and that's the only way people get saved. Listen, we don't believe in divine sovereignty because we're Calvinists. We believe in divine sovereignty because we're Biblicists. Believe what's revealed in Scripture. Just saying what's plainly there, what's on the face of the text. But I appeal to more than the Bible. Think of your own conversion. Think of your own experience. How were you saved? Some of you can remember the day For some of you, it's more fuzzy, it's more kind of a season of life, and you can remember it was around then, okay? But think back to your own conversion and how you became a Christian. How were you saved? Why did you come? Like, what happened in you that all of a sudden you came and responded to the gospel? Did you just get your act together one day? Just wake up and get smart. Can't you testify that God was doing something invisibly to draw you to Himself, to, like, woo you to Himself, to bring you to Himself. Wasn't there something going on? And you can look back now and see, you know, it wasn't that I just got smart. It wasn't that I just got my act together. There was something happening there. God was drawing me. Charles Spurgeon asked his congregation a similar question. He says this, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Was there not a day the mementos of which you fondly cherish when you were called from death into life? Fly back now to the day and the hour if you can, and if not, light upon the season thereabouts when the great transaction took place, in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to Him. It is voluntary. Voluntary surrender of yourself to him. And Spurgeon says, in looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration. What grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you. Like what was in you to motivate God to call you? Should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Oh, if he had not called you, where would you have been tonight? Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career This was a kind and gracious call when we consider what we might have been. You remember being dead in sin? So motivated and influenced by Satan and darkness under his dominion, engaged in the passions of the flesh and the desires of the mind. What would have happened to you had God not stopped you and arrested you and awoken you? and shine light into your darkness. Was not God doing something? I'm appealing to your experience. Can't you see that God was at work drawing you to himself? No one comes to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. We need to move on now to the third point. We've seen, first of all, the coming of a person to Jesus has its origins in the sovereign will of God. Secondly, People are incapable of coming to Jesus unless God sovereignly draws them. And now thirdly, and you you test whether or not this is true, the coming of a person to Jesus depends on the life-giving power of God's Spirit. The coming of a person to Jesus depends on the life-giving power of God's Spirit. Please look with me at verses 63 through 65. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That's a profound statement. You could build theology off of that statement. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's a statement reminiscent, again, of something Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus. It's there in verse 5 that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. What does that mean? You and I were born of flesh. Mother and father conceived, and you were born of flesh. Very simple statement. That which is born of flesh is flesh, is flesh. Like, I am flesh. You are flesh flesh by nature. That which is born of flesh is flesh. All I've got is flesh left to myself. And then Jesus says in John 6 verse 63, the flesh is no help at all. So that which is born of flesh is flesh, and the flesh is no help at all. So I was born of flesh, I am flesh, and my flesh doesn't get me anywhere. The flesh is no help at all. That's where we are outside of Christ, Do you have it within you, within your flesh, your person, to come to Christ? The answer is no. The flesh is no help at all. But then Jesus says back in John 3, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that which is born of spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, is spirit, like like substance as the spirit, spirit. And so that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then Jesus says in John 6 63, it is the spirit who gives life. If you're born of flesh, you are flesh, and the flesh is no help at all. You're born of the spirit, you are spirit, and the spirit gives life. So, what are the resources available to a sinner? He's got his flesh, which is no help at all. So, what does he need? He needs the activity of God's Spirit who brings life. He needs to be born of God's Spirit. He needs the Holy Ghost to regenerate him at the deepest levels of his heart. What needs to happen for someone to come to Christ? God the Holy Spirit must come and give life. There is no salvation apart from this. The Spirit must give life. You remember back in Ezekiel? If you grew up in Sunday school, surely you heard this story. Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones... You kids, you know that story? Ezekiel comes to this valley of dry bones, and he says, behold, they were very dry. He's looking over these bones, and God asks Ezekiel, what can make these bones live? Like somehow get flesh and stand up, and be raised from the dead. And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. You know looking at these bones, how are they going to live? Lord, I got nothing. Lord, you know. And then what happens? God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the valley of dry bones, and the Spirit comes and gives life to those bones. Before Ezekiel's eyes, flesh forms on these bones, and then the breath of life is breathed into them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they stand, and he says, Behold, a great army was before me. That's the situation we're in. Every time the Word of God is preached, it's preached to a valley of dry bones. And unless the Spirit comes and gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Like I can't stack these bones in a certain way to get them to resemble a living person. Uh, I can't say some sort of spell over these bones and get them to have life. The Spirit must give life. That which is born of flesh is flesh and the flesh is no help at all. That which is born of spirit is spirit and the spirit gives life. And so you feel this way, right? You're trying to witness to a friend. You're trying to witness to a child or to a parent or something like that. And you're just hitting up against a brick wall because the flesh is no help at all. Don't be surprised. What do you need? You need God's spirit to come and do something you cannot do because the spirit gives life. The origin of salvation is in the sovereign will of God. It depends on the sovereign activity of God's Spirit. And that's why Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it's granted him of his Father. The Spirit must come and breathe life upon these dry bones. That's the hope. So I ask again now, having gone through those three points, what is the decisive factor in the coming of a soul unto Jesus? The answer, I think, from John 6, is that it is the sovereign activity of God. The Spirit must give life, for the flesh is of no help at all. So there you have it. Those are my three points. The coming of a person to Jesus has its origin in the sovereign will of God. Secondly, people are incapable of coming to Jesus unless God sovereignly draws them. Now, Thirdly, the coming of a person to Jesus depends on the life-giving power of God's Spirit. I understand this to be essentially the doctrine of, whatever you want to call it, sovereign election, predestination, that salvation is ultimately a result of divine sovereignty. Now I recognize, I recognize that a lot of people struggle with this doctrine. If if you don't know that, you will find that out, okay? A lot of people struggle with this doctrine. Now, I actually never did, not because I was so smart, but I was raised in a church that taught this. So I learned this along with the gospel and creation and all these other things. It was just part of what I learned. I pray that'll be part of what your children learn. And I, when I became aware, like as a teenager, that people really did struggle with this doctrine, that was sort of perplexing to me. Like, why? I don't get it. I understand now. There are some difficult implications to this. Like, there's some things you have to work out. You do have to take this on and answer some tough questions. And I'm not ignorant. There are objections that people would raise to this teaching, to this doctrine. And those objections should be answered, not with pat answers, but with thoughtful biblical answers, prayerful biblical answers. Now at this point in the message, I thought of anticipating what some of those objections are. I'm not going to do that exactly. Okay, I can't answer every objection someone might raise in this particular sermon. But I do want to say to you, if you have questions, you can come to me and we can talk about them. Or you could email me. My email is alexdupreme at emmanuelws.com. Email me and we'll talk about them. Can't do them all in this sermon. But there are two objections I want to acknowledge and address briefly right now that people raise against this doctrine. First of all, one might say, If God's sovereign will is the decisive factor in salvation, does that mean that God holds off people who sincerely wish to come to Him? Someone wants to come to them, to God. What if he's not elect? What if she's not elect? What if the Father's not drawing that person? Does that mean God's going to hold them off if they really do want to come to Him? All right, this is actually a really easy one. The answer is, of course not. Rather, the impulse to come to Jesus to repent of sin, to have faith in Christ, to say that Jesus is Lord cannot happen apart from the Spirit of God. So if you want to come to Christ, his policy is come on. Doors are wide open. And that very desire to come to Jesus is a sign that God himself is drawing you. Why? Because people love darkness rather than light, but here you are wanting to come to the light. Well, how could that happen if not God is doing a work in your life? The Spirit gives life, and here you're experiencing life. Come to Jesus. God is drawing you. Respond to that drawing and believe. A second objection. If God's sovereign will is the decisive factor in salvation, does that mean I forfeit my free will? If God's sovereignty is the decisive factor in salvation, does that mean I forfeit my free will? Like, do I have a free will? Or am I just pre-programmed by God? Of course you have a free will. Of course you have a free will. Listen, you only do what you want all the time. That's true. Might not seem like it, but it's true. You only do what you want all the time. You say, I really don't want to abide by the speed limit. No, you actually do. And the reason you abide by the speed limit is because you don't want the cops to come and give you a ticket. So you want to follow the speed limit. You always do what you want. You do have a free will. That's actually the problem because we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born lovers of darkness and haters of the light. And that's why I said a moment ago, given the choice between sin and Christ, darkness and light, natively, naturally, you will choose darkness and sin 10 times out of 10 because that's that's what you want. The native palate of the soul tastes darkness and says, this tastes good. And tastes light and spits it out. Why? That's how we're born. Dead in sin. Lovers of darkness. Haters of the light. What we need is God to intrude upon us and to change us and to regenerate us and to make us want Him. Like, why was it that on February 6, 2001, I didn't want Jesus? But on February 7, 2001, He was my Lord and Savior and everything beautiful and lovely to me. Why was that? Like, what happened? And I know myself. I didn't just get smart. But God the Holy Spirit came and seized me and arrested me and gave me life by His Holy Spirit. That's what God does when He saves a sinner. It's all a result of His sovereign will. And in my free will, I will choose what I want. God needs to change what I want. And He does that for all those who He has called and chosen and drawn to Himself. So I encourage you, Emmanuel Church, today, the truth is laid out before us. Ask yourself, is there something being imposed on the text? Or is this doctrine plainly taught? We have to ask ourselves, are we Bible people? Will we believe what God has said? I could go work out the implications later, but choose this day who you will serve Will it be the God of, of your imagination or God as you might want Him to be? Or will it be the God who is plainly revealed on the pages of Scripture as totally sovereign in salvation? The one who gives life, the one who draws sinners to Himself. Will we worship that God, the God as He has shown to us in the Bible? Or will we worship some other God that we imagine? This is the test. I encourage you. Don't hide from the Scripture. Study it out. Believe what is true. And we can work out the tough questions. We'll figure that out. But may we be a people who submit to the Word of God and believe it as it is revealed to us. Well, my friend, I hope that you do come to accept the doctrine of election if you don't already. But I hope for more than that. Like, I don't want you to just accept this doctrine. I want you to love this doctrine. To love it. And so to that end, I want to give you a few points of application few encouragements. Why should we love this doctrine? Why is it wonderful? Why is it so glorious? Four things in particular, and I'll be brief. First of all, the doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation ensures that all boasting is in God. The doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation ensures that all boasting is in God. Again, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. That's the aim. That God gets all glory. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. If salvation is all of God, if it's the Spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all, i got nothing to boast about. I bring nothing to the table. I can only boast in God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Oh, I'll boast about what God has done for me. I can sing, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That's boasting in God. And what he alone has done by his grace. Let us make our boast in the Lord, in a God who is totally sovereign in salvation. Secondly, second encouragement The doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation provides the most solid foundation for Christian assurance. The doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation provides the most solid foundation for Christian assurance. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. If salvation is based on the sovereign, immutable, rock-solid, ever-sure, never-failing, never-changing will of a sovereign God, and not on my fickle, feeble, frail, often-failing, pathetic, wandering will, then I can know today that I am eternally secure. If it depends on Him, I'm safe. If it depends on me, I'm damned. Because I know myself. I know how fickle I am. I know how frail I am. I know that I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, but it's not up to me. Salvation depends on the sovereign will of God. So I just ask you again, appealing to your experience, how do you know, like how do you know that you know that you know that tomorrow you're going to wake up a Christian. I know you can sing it as well with my soul today and shout that out. How do you know that tomorrow you'll be able to sing that? How do you know that you'll be safe 10 years from now? How do you know that when you get to your dying day, you're going to continue believing? Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Is that the plan? I don't mean to be silly. Or will you have faith tomorrow because God has done a supernatural work in your heart and by His Spirit, He's given you life. And my eternal security depends not on my frailty, but on the unshaking, sovereign will of God. If that's what you believe, you can sing, He will hold me fast which we'll sing in a few moments. That's security for the believer. That's sanity for some of us. There are Christian circles that will teach, you can lose your salvation. You have to maintain those graces. I couldn't live that way. And thankfully, I don't have to live that way because the Bible teaches that my life is hid with Christ in God. And I'm safe forever through His sovereign will third application to help you love the doctrine of divine sovereignty. The doctrine of divine sovereignty in salvation ensures the success of world missions. Doesn't just give it a good chance, ensures the success of world missions. What, you're telling me Calvinists can evangelize? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. They ought to, because The doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation ensures the success of world missions. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Nothing will thwart his will. I will lose nothing of those who have been given me by my Father. Nothing can snatch them out of the Father's hands. God will have his souls. Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will gather around the throne. God is drawn and redeemed by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus. So why is it that we send the gospel into the heart of China, pray for our laborers there? Why do we support gospel laborers in northern Iraq? What hope do we have that men and women from the Karawai people group in the jungles of Papua are going to believe the gospel as it's preached to them by our missionaries? Oh, in the flesh, prospects aren't good. The flesh is no help at all. We're hoping that the Spirit gives life and that God will fulfill His purposes and that He who is sovereign in salvation will overcome every obstacle. By faith, this mountain will be moved and the power of the gospel will prevail. For this reason, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And again, I just ask you, who would have thought 60 years ago that communist China would be home to tens of millions of Christians. There was no sociological data available at the time to suggest that that might happen. There were no metrics trending in that direction. By the same token, who would have thought a hundred years ago that the continent of Africa would go from 10 million professing Christians to half a billion people who claim Jesus Christ as their Savior and their God? Against all odds, the gospel has prevailed. Why? Because God has called and elected men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they will come. His purposes will be fulfilled. The Lord said, Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. God will have his souls. He will have people redeemed from the nations of the world. Can you imagine how those words would have hit these disciples looking on? We have the retrospect of church history, 2,000 years. The gospel has overcome every obstacle. But here are these 12 men, 11 of them who truly believe, because Judas was a devil, we learn later. These 11 men are looking on, and here are the thousands of crowds who have come, and they're about to witness mass defection. Just, just a, a in-your-face expression of unbelief. They're going to think, what are we doing? This is pathetic. What hope do we? They didn't have a lot of data points to look back to. People miraculously coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus with unshaking confidence says, I will fulfill my Father's will. He has souls that he has given to me, and they will come to me. And then in the power of God's Spirit, these disciples go forth and win souls to faith in Christ. Fourth and final encouragement, and then we'll be done. The doctrine of divine sovereignty in salvation gives hope that anyone can be saved. The doctrine of divine sovereignty in salvation gives us hope that anyone can be saved. If salvation is ultimately a matter of the will of God. If the scene really is a bunch of dry bones and we're depending on the spirit to give life, brother, sister, anyone can be saved. No, you don't understand. I've been witnessing to my mom for 45 years. It's not looking good. But what do you expect? The flesh is no help at all. If the spirit is the one who gives life, oh, there's reason for great hope. As long as there's life, there's hope. If salvation is in the hands of a sovereign God, anyone can be saved. You don't have to set the temperature just right and somehow come up with ways to make conditions perfect. If God is going to have that man or that woman or that boy or that girl, He will have them. He will sovereignly draw them. And so you can pray and hope in the confidence of a sovereign God who can save anyone at any time. We're not without hope. I can tell you if salvation was not in God's hands, we would be. There are people who would appear very hopeless, but because we depend on God, anyone can be saved. And so what should I say now to you who are outside of Christ? You don't believe in Christ, you've thought about coming to him, not sure. What should you do with all of this? Unapologetically, I understand it to be my job to preach to Christ's sheep, that's what I do. But I think about you as well. What should you do with this sermon? said, so I thinking of coming to Jesus, I might want to come to Jesus, but I didn't know about all of this. Do I have to somehow figure out, am I elect? Am I one of those souls the Father has given to the Son? I don't really know what to do with this. Listen to me. you have one thing to concern yourself with. It's not John 6:44. It's John 6:35. "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. You want to come to Jesus? This is Jesus' posture towards you. Come on. He will have you today. He will receive you today. The Lord Jesus Himself by the Holy Spirit is standing here with open arms saying, Come to me. Come to me. I'll have you. I'll receive you. I'm willing that you would come. That is His posture. And the promise is that He will have all those who come to Him. And you can know When you sleep tonight, that Jesus will never cast you out. He'll never leave you or forsake you. As so many others will, he'll never fail you. He'll never leave you. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hands, Jesus says. And so I invite you freely, boldly, with an open face, with an open Bible, come to Jesus Christ and live. Come to the waters and drink. Come without money and buy and eat. Come to Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, you know. You know the end from the beginning, you know our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. Come in these moments and do what you have done so many times. Breathe life onto dry bones. Draw men and women to yourself. Cause us to boast and glory in a God who is sovereign over all, a God who is the author of salvation. Thank you that the gospel is true that all who would come, all who would believe can have salvation in Jesus Christ, and that it is the way that you deal with your people, that you make them eternally secure. We know that you will keep all of your promises. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will never let us go. We're clinging to you, trusting in you to hold us fast until we meet you at last in the new heavens and new earth.